Well, I was going to share something, but now that, that the, like the role is gone, so I don't know if I can share that right now. But uh, I had a real rough, rough night last night. I don't know. I didn't, I didn't prepare my wife for, for the sharing, but we had a huge war last night, huge battle, conflict that went into late in the evening, early this morning. I saw I'm kind of tired this morning. And it wasn't between me and my wife. It wasn't between me and my children. It was between me and a cricket in our backyard. <laughs> so one thing I learned in life is um, you know, crickets are small, but it's almost impossible to sleep through a cricket noise. I tra- tried that last night till 1 in the morning, tossed and turning, and I felt um, very close to becoming disqualified for the ministry <laughs> because of the anger in my heart. And I tried singing in my heart, making melody in my heart, reciting verses. And here I am, one in the morning with slippers in the backyard with a flashlight, trying to find this cricket. <laughs> trying to, I'm going to smash this cricket. I'm going to demolish it. I'm going to... And was not successful. So I was, I was hoping maybe I scared the cricket away, go back to sleep. 1.30, the cricket's back, and I can't go back to sleep. So I went and went to the garage and got um, insect killer, one grade below napalm. I mean, the strongest stuff I can buy legally. And here, 1:30 in the morning, I'm spraying my whole backyard. <laughs> and I started hearing chirping, and chirping became a little more infrequent, a little quieter, and I won. <laughs> so that's the first thing I learned. I'll share with you. There's a cricket in your house. Don't even fight it. Just go and kill it. <laughs> Second thing I learned is uh, if you're ever at a, um, at, a, at a mall and you're hungry and there is a sushi restaurant at a mall serving fast food sushi, you know, skip it. It's, <laughs> it's not worth the risk. And if you have to eat there, skip the raw food there. So a few weeks ago... Um, you know, somebody told me, James, you lost some weight. You know, what diet are you on? And I said, uh, tuna hand roll diet. <laughs> Those three hand rolls for under $15. What a deal. And uh, it wasn't a good deal. I was at UCLA speaking at AACF, came home that night, and uh, I was uh, out of commission for a few days, to say the least. And I think I just recovered maybe a few hours ago <laughs> from, from that experience. So... Another thing that I learned, pass on to you. The next time you're at a, at a mall, at a food court, you see a sushi restaurant, keep walking. There's uh, better food on the way. Well, that would have been much better with, with uh, you know, my other mic, but <laughs> it's the cricket. It's the cricket. Uh, if you open your Bibles to 2 Timothy chapter 2, we're continuing our study in this epistle. Uh, what a, a tremendous study it has been thus far. Heard, heard from many of you. I thank you for your emails and you know even even between the plays at football Sunday afternoon, encouraging me and thanking me for the message, it impacted my heart tremendously as well. I was I was reminded this week of a First Thessalonians. 3.8, I'll just read for you. It says, uh, Now we live since you are standing fast in the Lord. For what thanksgiving can we return to God for you for all the joy 
that we feel for your sake before our God. That was Paul's heart towards Thessalonians, the faithful believers there. Because they were walking steadfastly in Christ, because of their devotion to the Lord, their love for Christ, love for Paul, love for the church, love for the gospel. He says, how can we appropriately give thanks to our God for your sake, for all that we feel because of you? That is um, my heart's uh, response as I pray for all of you, as I consider Cornerstone, as I think of your faith and your faithfulness, your love for Christ and the gospel. I am overwhelmed with gratitude. I am filled with thanksgiving. And my heart response is just like Paul. What thanksgiving can I return to God for you? For all the joy that you have given to me by your faith. It is not unique to me. I know that's the heart that Bob has. Dan, Jason, Joe, all the care group leaders. Because that is the heart of all those who minister uh, Christians, minister to Christians, all those who labor and serve God's church. Apostle John said the same thing in 3 John verse 4. I have no greater joy in my life, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. Of all the things that gave John joy in his life, he says the number one joy is to hear that believers are walking with Christ, are faithful, are enjoying and savoring the glory of God and the cross of Christ. Well, uh, that is true. But the sad reality is the opposite is also true. The height of joy we experience when Christians follow Christ is equaled only by the valley of despair and sorrow when we hear and we know and we see uh, believers going astray, believers being entangled in cares of life or sinful things of this world or false doctrine. There is the opposite truth. that There is no greater sorrow in this life when we hear believers going astray. Paul experienced this. Paul talked about this in his epistle, 2 Corinthians chapter 11, 22 through 29. In the first seven verses there, he, he, he recounts all the trials and tribulations that he experienced as an apostle of Christ. And he's giving um, authenticating evidences, validations that he's a true apostle. And is, what validates him is, are his sufferings. How much he has suffered for Christ. And the last one on the list might be surprising. I mean, they, they, they're growing in intensity. The, the, the persecutions, the trials, the, the difficulties that he experienced grow in intensity. And the last one that he lists is, from, apart from all these things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. The physical pain is one thing. Like physical scars heal. I put some Neosporin on it, put a Band-Aid, give it some time. Physical scars will heal. But the emotional, spiritual 
scars that are left by believers when they are going through trials, sufferings, or going astray take much longer to heal, and sometimes they never heal. Yeah, he said, who is weak, and I am not weak? Who is made to fall, and I am not indignant? So when he hears of a Christian who's struggling, he struggles with them. He bears that burden. And when he hears of a believer going astray, he becomes indignant. Righteous anger, righteous passion consumed Paul's heart. And I believe that's what's happening here in 2 Timothy 2, 14 through 19. The backdrop of this passage is Paul's heart as a shepherd. Paul's pain in the jail cell is not uh, him being chained to the wall or him being mocked or scoffed or being threatened with punishment or a long jail term or his life being taken away. The far greater pain that Paul is experiencing is um, the defections that are occurring among Christians and the error that is being espoused by these false teachers in the church at Ephesus and Christianity-wide. And the real anguish of Paul is not just a loss of liberty, loss of freedom. The real anguish is he doesn't have the freedom to go to be with these Christians, to protect them from this error, to help them, to guard them, to teach and instruct them with the gospel so that they might not be led astray by these false teachers and their false teachings. And that is um, agonizing for Paul. I mean, I, understanding how even false theology and false teaching spreads, it's agonizing to Paul. He's filled with sorrow. His heart is melting within him. We've, my wife and I experienced this a few years ago. We went to we're going to Montana for vacation years ago, like four or five years ago. And it's a 19-hour drive. So the, the midpoint between here and Montana is Salt Lake City, Utah. So we thought it'd be a good experience to go to uh, the, you know, the capital of Mormonism and uh, you know, family-friendly family area, right? And so we went there, spent the night, and before we made that final trek to Montana, we did a tour of their um, temple square. And to see all these Mormons was so uh, disheartening. They are so deceived. And we go on this tour, and at the end of the tour, they take you to their like final showcase. And it's a big statue of Jesus in ivory, like 20 feet high. The lights gl- dim, and Jesus is speaking to the statue, espousing their, their error. And my wife and I couldn't believe it. This is like cheesy Las Vegas. Right? This is like cheesy like production, and people are falling for this. There were two gals that were showing us around, and we're sharing the gospel with them. And uh, you could tell they were getting very uncomfortable. They are becoming very disruptive, and we're going back and forth, and all the while, our hearts were uh, 
melting within us. And as we're leaving, we said, this is the most disturbing experience we've ever had to see people so lost in error. They know about Jesus. They know about the Bible. They're so, quote-unquote, close in in terms of being exposed to the real gospel, but they couldn't be more further away because of the error of Joseph Smith, because of the false teaching of this man. That is what um, Paul is experiencing a thousand times more. So in light of this, Paul gives two commands to Timothy and uh, an ultimate truth uh, that will guide him to in, in, his, in following through on these two commands. Paul gives Timothy two commands and then, and then closes with the, an ultimate truth that will help him obey these commands. The first command relates to Timothy and in his ministry to the church. The second command is related to Timothy himself, his own ministry, his own life, his own character, his own conduct. Let's study the first command, verse 14. Here is Paul's command to Timothy as he ministers the church at Ephesus. It is a twofold command, both imperative verbs. Remind them of these things and charge them before God. Not to crow about words, which does no good but only ruins the hearers. The first command is remind. Present active imperative. Just like verse 1, be strengthened. Just like verse 2, entrust. Just like verse 7, consider. The command here is remind. The present tense carries the idea of persistence. This is a key ministry of spiritual leaders, key ministry of pastors. Our job is not to say new things. If you go to church and you hear new things, novel things, things that were never heard or said before, you can be sure it's not from the scriptures. Because there is no new truth. There is no new revelation. We are given revelation of the gospel of Christ once for all. And our job is to keep hammering away, reminding Christians of the same truth Sunday after Sunday after Sunday. That was Paul's ministry philosophy, 2 Timothy 1.6. For this reason, I remind you. Peter as well, 2 Peter 1.12. I intend always to remind you. In fact, he says, if someone is not growing in Christ, it's because they have not been reminded. They have forgotten these truths. Second Peter 3, 1, this is the second letter I am writing to you. And it is good I am reminding you. Jude 1, 5, I want, you to remind, I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, but obviously they've forgotten. And so, uh, this, this is important. Paul is telling Timothy, Timothy, just don't tell them once. You got to keep telling them these things. Why? Because uh, we forget. We forget all the time. I forget all the time. So the job of the pastor is not just to keep reminding ourselves of these things, but it's to remind ourselves 
of these old truths. What is these things? It's that previous passage. Remember Jesus Christ. Remember. If we die with Him, we will live with Him. If we endure, we will reign with Him. If we deny Him, He will deny us. But remember this, that our Christian life is not based upon our faithfulness. Our Christian life is not contingent upon our obedience, our perfection, our salvation, our sanctification, and our ultimate glory with Christ is all based on His faithfulness. And He cannot deny who He is. He is a faithful God. Faithful to a thousand generations. His love is new every morning and steadfast. Remind them of these things continually so that they will not despair, they will not go astray. And Timothy, remind yourself of these things. Remind the church, remind yourself. And not only that, charge them before God. Charge them. The Greek word is marturo, from where we get the word martyr. Witness, testify, urge, insist. Testify before them. But in the Greek, there is a prefix, dia. Dia marturomai. It's an intensive form of this verb. That's why NASB translates it solemnly charge. Right? Solemnly charge. So Paul adds an intensive here. Don't just charge them. Be, be serious. Right? Have a sense of urgency. Have a sense of intensity as you declare these things, telling us the greatest remedy against false theology, the greatest remedy against false life is to remember and to be charged. Remember the gospel and to avoid quarrels, avoid babbling of words, which leads only to ruin. It's a twofold medication to keep us walking with Christ. And the seriousness of the admonition is made all the more greater because Paul tells Timothy to charge them in the presence of God. In the presence of God. Now, God is always present. He is omnipresent. He is always with us. Paul is saying, um, when you're giving this charge, call to mind God's presence. Actively remember Actively uh, engage and remind the congregation that before God, I am charging you. I am declaring to you these truths. So that people might not think, oh man, here he goes again. Right? Is Timothy not prepared? Doesn't he study? How come he says the same things again and again? We've heard this before. I know this already. Or you might be thinking, Pastor James, again? Right? I heard this before. You didn't study this week again? Why is he saying the same thing again and again? Timothy, don't let them circumvent you that way. Don't let them lower the volume of your mouth. Don't let them drown you out with distracted thoughts. Solemnly charge them and call them to mind that God's presence is with you as you declare these things. Because that's the seriousness of this charge. And what is it? Paul said, remind them of the gospel and then charge them, command them, verse 14, not to quarrel about words. Not to debate with people. And he's not talking about, you know, just 
like talking to one another or defining terms with fellow believers. I mean, even like gossip and slander is wrong, it's sinful. But that's not what Paul is talking about by its context. He, he talks later on about Hymenaeus and Philetus who have shipwrecked their faith, 1 Timothy 6, and they are upsetting the faith of some. They're, they're proclaiming heresies. The context is false teachers. So with false teachers who deny the scriptures, who don't believe in the words, they don't trust in the authoritative, inerrant, infallible, sufficient word of God, with such people, don't quarrel with them about scripture, about words, because their, their motivation is not to glorify God. Their motivation is not to advance the gospel. Their motivation is not truth. It's for, the, it's for themselves. It's, it's to uh, use godliness ministry for personal gain, for sordid gain, 1 Timothy 6. It's to, for their own victory, for their own um, esteem, for them to be worshipped instead of God. So with such people... Do not quarrel with them about words. Don't contend with them. Debate with them about words. So again, Paul is not talking about uh, debate among Christians. Dialoguing, debating, discussing interpretations of Scripture with fellow believers. That is encouraged and that is modeled by the New Testament church. The Jerusalem Council in, in Acts 15, they had a debate, an issue about Gentiles coming to coming to faith as Christians, what do they need to do to become full Christians? And the apostles and elders and teachers gathered, and they had a council, the first council ever in the history of the, of the church, about Gentiles becoming Christians. And they debated, they talked, maybe it got even heated, and they came with a conclusion. So it is not talking about believers with grace and humility talking about Scripture. It's talking about false teachers, heretics, non-believers, and talking to them about the Word of God. Later on, verse 16, avoid irreverent babble. Avoid middle imperative. Paul is telling Timothy to tell each Christian to themselves, avoid ungodly talk. At all times. And so, at Cornerstone, we're good at loitering. Right, wherever we go, we loiter. We hang out. And some, some people that are not used to our culture get very frustrated with this. Because you're used to, like, after it's over, we, we go somewhere. We eat. We do something. Why are we just hanging around, standing around, really doing nothing, just loitering? That's become, like, our culture of our church. Well, that's okay. I mean, that's not good or bad, you know, to each his own. But... Paul is saying, don't loiter when there is babbling of words, when there is quarreling about words, and the and false teachers are the ones trying to get believers in a, in a, in a, setting, a debate setting. Paul is saying, avoid it at all costs. Run away, flee from it. And here. In verse 16, Paul is talking directly to Timothy. Right? So he's saying, uh, Timothy, no one is immune from false theology, false doctrine. Don't think uh, you're above, you know, it's okay, you know, Christians avoid it, but I'm so mature, I'm so godly, I can handle it. You know, I, I, I do this, I don't know why, it's foolish of me. 
you know, I, we have some doctors in the church, and they get sick. And I'm like, you're sick? You're a doctor. You're not supposed to get sick. How can you be a doctor and get sick? And then the teens, what are you talking about? Like, it's because you're a doctor. It doesn't mean you have special powers. <laughs> like, you know, you, like, you have some special, like, abilities. No, like, doctors are human beings, too. And they get sick. And I've heard of doctors, even while they're sick, they still go to work to treat other people. Right? Well, likewise, pastors. Pastors, leaders, we don't have special power, special abilities where we're immune from error. We're immune from being influenced by false teachers. Pastors, what, well, Timothy... You avoid calling about words. This is not just for the church. It's for you as well. And Paul gives four reasons why. Why um, Christians, we hear, we sit under authoritative declaration of the word of God. We hear God's word proclaimed. We are to avoid unbelievers who try to engage us in debates about the scriptures. First of all, verse 14, it does no good. No profit whatsoever. There is nothing to be gained by debating false teachers. Right. Not only that, second part of verse 14, only ruins the hearers. It only ruins them. Everyone that's there, everyone that's listening, they're not being edified. They're not being built up. They're being, the Greek word is catastrophe. They're experiencing ruin. It has a catastrophic effect on their faith. The faith that is in their hearts is being overturned, overthrown. It's being subverted. It's being torn apart, torn down. So not only is it unprofitable, it has a negative effect of everyone that listens to this debate, to this dialogue. Whether it's in the church, whether it's on YouTube, whether it's, I don't know, twittering back and forth, it's unprofitable and also it's catastrophe to all who listen. Verse 16, it will lead people into more and more ungodliness. The only thing it will do is promote more ungodliness. It'll lead to uh, greater and greater sin. And there is, uh, I think talking about these false teachers. You would just confirm and help them to grow in ungodliness, along with everyone who is hearing. And then the fourth one, fourth reason why, because their talk will spread like gangrene. Right. Gangrene here is it's a transliterated Greek word, gangrenia. It is uh, used of cancer, as well as this gangrene, which is a disease that spreads rapidly, and it's deadly. If not treated promptly and carefully, any infected part of the body can quickly lead to amputation or even death. Religious uh, error, theological error, is not something to be trifled with, not anything to be to toy around with. It is deadly, it is infectious, it is malicious. It's not enough to be handled with... Uh, a protective mask and gloves. It's a disease that is to be avoided at all costs because it corrodes, it consumes, it, it eats away. Anything it touches, it mortifies. So we come into contact with false teaching. 
and it attaches to us, it corrodes that part of our spiritual man. And not only that, it spreads, it multiplies. And he gives an example in verse 17 and 18. And so, you know, Paul had uh, excommunicated Hamanias in 1 Timothy 6. He had called them out as a false teacher. Apparently this man didn't listen to Paul and was still hanging around the church, spreading, espousing his error. So he calls Hymenaeus out and his friend Valitus. And, and this is where I'm sure church history, if we had a better understanding of the context, it would help us understand what is really going on. Who are these men? Why, why name them? It must be because they're known by Timothy. Right, you have friends, like they tell you people that, that you don't even know, and in your conversation they mention names, and you don't know who they are. So at the end of the conversation, why did you mention that person? I don't know that person. That was totally like irrelevant to me, and that was a waste of my time. If Paul was doing this, it would be a waste of Timothy and all, all the readers, all, the church at Ephesus. But i got to believe Timothy knew Hymenaeus and Philetus. The church at Ephesus knew these men. They were, they were once godly men, spiritual leaders, men who were respected and trusted, had a reputation of, of integrity and love for Christ. And he says, look, look at these men. These men did not avoid quarreling about the words. These men engaged with false teachers, with babbling of words, thought they were above being influenced by false theology. These men started debating with them, and they were infected. And that infection spread to their whole faith. And now they're espousing what is heresy. Unbelievable heresy is being taught by these men. It's spread to their whole body and they have shipwrecked their faith. They've completely gone astray. They're, they're teaching blasphemy. And what is that blasphemy? That the resurrection has already taken place. They're upsetting the faith of some. And these these are uh, proto-Gnostics. The Gnostics were, you know, these these guys and these, these, this group of people who thought that the physical body uh, was, was was sinful and the spiritual man was was pure. So they rejected the physical resurrection of Christ and they believed when you became a Christian and received the received the Holy Spirit and the gifts of tongues and all the signs and wonders were, were signs of a, that resurrection that had already taken place. So whatever they did in the flesh was of no consequence. Long as they were spiritually filled, um, they were pleasing God. So they would get into this ecstatic uh, uh, experiences and they discounted future resurrection of believers, which is complete, complete heresy. Paul said that resurrection uh, is not a reality for us and our whole teaching is error. We are to be pitied among all men. That is the hope that we await for as Christians. And uh, their gangrene is spreading. It is upsetting the faith of some. Genuine Christians, devoted Christians are, are affected by these two men and their error. So Paul's charge to Timothy is remind believers and remind yourself of the gospel and charge the believers and charge yourself to 
avoid them. Run away. Not to engage them in debate. The first command is Timothy in terms of the church. The second command relates to Timothy himself. Verse 15. In terms of yourself, Timothy, this is how you are to respond. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved. A worker who has no need to be ashamed, who rightly handles, rightly handling the word of truth. The best response, the most appropriate response to the disease of error is for the man of God to do his best in studying and obeying and preaching the scriptures. First of all, Paul tells Timothy to make it his supreme ambition to obtain God's approval. Spudazzo, to be diligent, carries the idea of having zealous persistence to accomplish a particular objective. He is to give maximum effort to impart God's truth as completely, as clearly, and as unambiguously as possible. He is to give unresolved commitment in examining, interpreting, explaining, and applying God's word to do His best. That is the call given to pastors, given to preachers and teachers, call given to all those who seek to serve Christ's church. That is why Martin Luther said, we can spare everything except the Word of God. The servant of God is nothing. The Word of God is everything. That's why Edwards wrote, resolved to study the Scriptures so steadily, constantly, and frequently as that I may find and plainly perceive myself to grow in the knowledge of the same. John Piper wrote, The word of God that saves and sanctifies from generation to generation is preserved in a book. And therefore, at the heart of every pastor's work is book work. Call it reading, meditation, reflection, study, exegesis, call it whatever you will. A large and central part of our work is to wrestle God's meaning from the Bible and proclaim it in the power of the Holy Spirit. The immense implication of this for the pastoral ministry is that we pastors are essentially brokers of the Word of God transmitted in a book. We are fundamentally readers and teachers and proclaimers of the message of the book. That's our work. That's the work that Paul tells Timothy to to give his best at doing. And in so doing, that is the work that pastors are called to do. And I've said this before, and and more and more true, the hardest thing I do is studying the Bible. The most difficult thing for me to do. I'd rather meet with every one of you one-on-one for counseling. I'd rather go out Cold turkey evangelism. I'd rather, um, you know, go be a bounty hunter, right? <laughs> I'd rather go repo cars, 
right? Or serve, you know, legal papers, right? I'd rather even not watch kids. I don't know. <laughs> watch kids and no. But the hardest thing is to sit down. And my heart's going at 50 miles per hour and slow it down to 5 miles per hour and to read the Bible and to think, to examine, to reflect, to consider, and then apply it to my own heart and make sure that it's out of the overflow of my heart I am preaching God's Word to you. And the most painful thing is every Sunday, the most humiliating thing is I am preaching above myself. I am preaching the Holy Word of God, which is perfect, and I am a sinner. I fall short. If I preach myself, afterwards I feel good. I walk down with a swagger. Man, I told them about what I did this week, what a great person I am, all the things I've accomplished. I walk good. I walk around after snacks. I'm a good person, right? I'm a good guy. I'm a good, good, good friend, good husband. But no, every Sunday, the Word of God pierces my heart. Double-edged sword reminds me about how, how woefully I, sh- I fall short. And I'm the least qualified to preach God's Word. As far as I know, I'm the worst sinner in this room. But I preach God's Word. And we all feel the same way. And that is the charge given to Timothy and given to pastors to be diligent in this because... We are so prone to neglect the Word of God. To be diligent, to do this, and to present oneself approved to God. The idea of this passage is that you present yourself before God for inspection. You present your work before God to be inspected by God, and that's my fear. I I mean... People ask me for my sermon notes time to time, and I give it to them. But it's kind of a vulnerable thing. It's kind of a scary thing because you give them your sermon notes, you're giving them a little bit of your heart. You're being vulnerable there. But to give my sermon notes to God, Dan, what would that be like, right? God says, Dan, I want to see your sermon notes. I want to see your work. That's a scary thing. Paul says, do your best to present yourself, not just yourself, yourself your, your, your character, your heart, your ministry before God. Where you are seeking the approval of only one person. As you minister, as you preach, as you serve, you're not preaching for non-believers, you're not preaching for the false teachers, you're not seeking the approval of, the, of Christians, you're seeking the approval of one, that is God. Every Christian teacher, preacher should be able to say, along with Paul in Galatians 1.10, Am I striving to please men? If I were still striving to please men, I would not be a servant of Christ. They would also say, 1 Thessalonians 2.4, We have been entrusted with the gospel, not to please man, but to please God who examines our hearts. Every Christian, every Christian leader or teacher, their heart is to hear God say one day, Well done good and faithful servant. They present themselves to God and their effort is to handle it correctly. Ortho tomeo, cutting it straight. 
Now, the, the word could be cutting a fabric straight. It could be a masonry term, a building term, cutting a rock straight. Or it could be an agrarian term, cutting a path straight. But the point is not cutting it, what, what it means. Is it a fabric or is it a rock or is it a path? The point is, you cut it straight. So when it's examined, there is no shame. Right? So if you're a tailor and you cut it and it's all crooked, or if you're a, a general contractor, you cut wood and it's not straight, or you're, you're paving road and it's not straight, when it's examined, you will feel shame. Paul is saying, do your best, Timothy, to present yourself to God, rightly handling God's word, cutting it straight, dealing with it accurately, so that when God examines it, there will be no shame. You will not be ashamed because you did your best to please God and not to please men. Those are the two commands that Paul gave Timothy and Paul therefore gives to us. Remind and charge, first command, and then do your best. Present yourself as a worker who need not be ashamed, who correctly handles the word of truth. But if we lose sight of the third, this ultimate reality, those two commands will cause us to lose our way. If we forget this ultimate truth, something far worse than others going astray can happen. When we battle against false doctrine in ourselves and in others, and we lose sight of verse 19, in time, you can bet on it, you will despair. You will lose yourself, and you will lose the war. You might win battles here and there, but you will lose the war. Our remedy for error and people going astray will be worse than the cure apart from verse 19. What hold, what keeps us steady, what keeps us from being motivated by fear or motivated by anger is verse 19. See, without verse 19, and we'll talk about this in weeks to come, latter part of 226, uh, how to confront false teachers with gentleness and patience. You know, that was the most difficult verse for me because when I, you know, when I watch TBN, I don't feel patience. I don't feel gentleness. I, I got to stop at some point because sinful anger, self-righteous anger, right, um, rises up within me. And when I deal with them, I'm the worst guy to share the gospel with false teachers because I can't keep my emotions in check. Or the other extreme is despair, right? I'm in that Mormon temple, and I'm like, where's God? God doesn't care. God doesn't know. God is not sovereign. Either way, I go astray, even while being engaged in the battle. That's why verse 19 is so crucial. As we relate to false teachers, and as we relate to believers who are being enticed by false teachers and going astray, Verse 19, 
but God's firm foundation. So the context is Hymenaeus, Philetus, right? They've shipwrecked their faith, proclaiming heresy, and it's upsetting the faith of some, but the contrast is nevertheless, right? Paul is saying he quickly changes the speed at which he changes, but Timothy, look up. You're looking at them, but look up. But God's firm foundation stands. Firm is steros, immovable. It stands. It's it's a verb in the perfect tense. Means it stood once and for all, and continues and forever. It will stand. The church, which is the pillar and the uh, foundation of the truth, will continue to stand. The Lord knows who are His, and let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. So God has put a seal on His people, on His invisible church, on true Christians. And the two seals are thus. First is, the Lord knows who belong to Him. We don't know. To us, it looks like defection. To God, there's no defection going on. First John 2.19, they went out from us because they were never of us. From God's perspective, He didn't lose anybody. He didn't lose anyone. John 10, 27 through 28. My sheep hear my voice. I know them. They follow me. I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one can snatch them out of my hand. My Father is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. The Father and I are one. Jesus is not losing. He's not losing ground. He's not being defeated. His sovereignty stands firm. He knows who belongs to Him. And He will not lose a single one. John 6, 37-40 All that the Father gives me shall come to me. And the one who comes to me I will not cast out. He has given them to me that I might lose no one, but will raise him up on the last day. This is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in Him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise Him on that last day. This is talking about God's sovereignty. The Lord knows belongs to Him. Though in the physical realm they're taken from the church, the visible church, in the invisible church, from God's perspective, He's not losing anyone. God's firm foundation of His elect people stands firm. Secondly, let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity, depart from sin. This second seal is both an exhortation and an affirmation. It's an exhortation calling us to holiness, calling us to sanctification, to be set apart, to live holy lives. But it's also an affirmation of God's perspective that everyone that He saves, He saves from sin. He rescues from sin. The drawing is a dragging. He drags believers from unrighteousness to righteousness. From unholiness to un- to holiness, to sin, 
to Christ's likeness. Our sanctification is divinely promised, is divinely guaranteed. And no matter what the false teachers do or say, no matter their new teachings that they devise to entice believers, our salvation and our sanctification stands firm by the sovereignty of God. We lose sight of that truth, then we'll live our Christian lives and engage error in ourselves and in others, either with anger or fear, either with self-righteousness or restlessness, anxiety. It's God's sovereignty that keeps us firm, that keeps us steady. Three final thoughts to close our time. How are you doing in taking the medicine for the disease of false teaching? How how well are you doing in remembering the gospel? Remembering Jesus Christ? How well are you doing in terms of abstaining from debating, uh, quarreling about words? whether it's a member of your family, whether it's a co-worker, uh, whether it's just maybe an online blog. Uh, you know, do you realize there's no profit? Do you realize everyone that participates is experiencing catastrophe? Uh, are you realizing that it is spreading like gangrene by your participation? That our, our commission is not to quarrel about words, Our commission is to proclaim the gospel, declare God's truth, declare Jesus Christ, to remember Jesus Christ and declare Jesus Christ. And that we are to avoid controversies, avoid quarreling about words, debating with unbelievers about words, meaning of words. Secondly, uh, it's kind of a selfish thing. sharing here, are you praying for your pastors? Are you praying for um, your leaders? Are you praying for me? If you get bad sermons, it's because you're not praying. (laughs) You do not have because you're not asking God. You're not asking God, as Paul said, pray for us. Pray for me. Pray for the elders and pastors that we would do the most difficult thing is to be diligent in the Word of God. Encourage us to do that. Protect us to do that. Help us to do that. Knowing that this is what God calls us to do, and this is what's most um, edifying to the whole church. Yeah, you know, speaking on behalf of the leaders, we want to be everywhere. We want to be at every activity Every outreach event, you know, every birthday party, every shower, every basketball game, we want to be there, <laughs> especially the games. But <laughs> verse 15, right, to cut it straight, right, to handle God's word accurately takes no small amount of energy and time. 
So pray for us, encourage us, help us, protect us to this end. And thirdly, um, how are you doing in verse 19? Maybe you're all gung-ho about verses 14 through 18. You're losing sight of uh, verse 19. Some signs in your own heart that you've lost sight of verse 19. Not just for others, but for yourself. Your own sanctification, your own holiness, your own maybe, uh, do I have gangrene? (laughs) Do I have staph infection? What is this in my heart? This is going to spread. Some signs that you've lost sight of verse 19 is uh, there's a restlessness, there is increasing anxiety, there is anger, there is impatience, there is a harshness to error in others and error in yourself. Do you believe the Lord knows? The firm foundation stands, stands forever that God knows who belong to him and his people will abstain from wickedness. But God, we do thank you for verse 19 that helps us to understand and obey uh, the commands given to Timothy. Lord, may your sovereignty, may your rule and reign, your majesty, your power, be what gives us confidence as we deal with uh, false teachers and false teachings in our lives, in this world, in our church, in our own hearts. May uh, uh, remembrance of the cross, remembrance of your Son, give us hope as we... uh, open up the word of God to snatch people from the fire because we know Lord you saved us even though while we were in sin even though while we were heretics and had all wrong thoughts of you or we were proud in our own error and leading others astray Lord you opened our eyes and you saved us so how much more can you save false teachers how much more can you save those who are lost in their own deception. Lord, uh, maybe by the gospel of Christ and your sovereignty, entrust our own sanctification to you, the sanctification of our beloved fellow believers in our church, knowing that no one can hinder your work, no one can thwart your will. Those who call upon your name will depart from iniquity you will deliver your people from sin to righteousness. May that be the hope that we have as we labor to be diligent, to show ourselves approved before you who have correctly handled the word of truth so that we will have no shame before you. We thank you for Paul's heart and Paul's ministry the word to us. In Jesus' name we pray. 